0: Hello, friends, and welcome to The Membership, a podcast about the life and work of Wendell Berry, a Kentucky farmer, poet, novelist, essayist, activist, and thinker. My name is Jason Hardy, and I'm joined, as usual, by my fellow members. This is John Pattison.
1: And this is Tim Wassum. How are
0: you guys doing today? Doing
2: great. Doing, it's good to, good to be recording again. It's been a little while. Yeah, it has
0: been. Yeah, we've,
1: we've had a big gap. So yeah, it is really good to be here.
0: So I think we're actually like closer in time to when we're releasing our our episodes. Where we have been releasing episodes that we recorded back in the fall, and um, now it's this is going to be released closer to the time that we recorded it anyway. So. Yeah, I think we had episodes that came out around Christmas where we were
2: talking about how hot it was. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: How, unti- like how unseasonably hot it was. It wasn't that unseasonably hot that it was <laughs> that it was 90 yeah. degrees in December, but yeah. Um,
0: not well, too far off. Uh, we are not uh, alone tonight. Uh, tonight we are thrilled to welcome another member, um, our guest, Pastor Tim Ross. Uh, Tim has served as a pastor in the Christian church for 38 years. He holds a doctorate of ministry from Emmanuel Christian Seminary, where he now also teaches. Uh, After serving as a cross-cultural missionary among the Maasai tribe in Kenya from 1987 to 1995, Tim became the minister of Hopwood Christian Church on the campus of Milligan College in 1996, and he serves in that capacity today. Along with his duties at the church and seminary, Tim also serves as a volunteer hospital chaplain, as a board member of Assistance Resource Ministries in Elizabethan, Tennessee, and as a board member for the Christian Holy Land Foundation, which supports Arab pastors in Galilee, Israel. He's married to his wife, Marcia, and they have four grown children. Tim, welcome to the membership.
3: Oh, thank you so much. It's so good to be with you guys. I'm a fan of the pod, and I've been (laughs) listening right along, so it's a joy to be here
0: with you tonight. Oh, man, we're happy to have you. Yeah, yeah. Good. Well, uh, you know, tonight we're going to be discussing uh, Wendell Berry's short story, Watch With Me, but before we get into that, uh, we wanted to let our listeners get to know Tim a little bit. Um, so Tim, the, the first question we always ask all of our guests is what is your Wendell Berry origin story? When did you first encounter his writing and what drew you to it? I think the first time I picked
3: up a Wendell Berry uh, book, someone gave me a copy of, um, that distant land. And so I sort of came to Berry through short stories and then I started picking up some of his essays um, I remember being particularly struck by why I don't have a computer, or whatever the name of that that essay <laughs> yeah, was. Yeah, yeah. And uh, thinking, who who is this guy? And then I discovered that I had a couple of friends who were neighbors and colleagues of uh, Wendell Berry. Uh, some college friends were one of us. One of these friends was actually doing a lot of his um, his writing, his um, correspondence, and. Uh, These are my friends, uh, David and Tanya, and uh, David's a a pastor in Kentucky, and uh, Tanya has has worked a lot with Wendell Berry. So I started picking up some some more of his books. I came to his poetry a little bit later, but I think I'll I'll always have a deep love for his novels and especially his short stories. I think they they strike me as uh, kind of home base.
0: Yeah, that's great. So uh, how would you say that uh, reading Barry has shaped the way you see your work uh, as a pastor?
3: It's kind of interesting because, you know, Barry, in one sense, doesn't seem to have a lot of love lost for pastors. Uh, <laughs> that's true. And, uh, you may have noticed that whenever pastors show up, there's probably trouble that's getting ready to follow. <laughs> um, but at the same time, uh, he, he's deeply steeped. In Scripture, um, and uh, and I found his work to, to resonate uh, incredibly with the work uh, the slow work of pastoring uh, a body of people for a long period of time. Um, I think you could change a few of the names and uh, and uh, perhaps a, a few of the places, and uh, the uh, the neighborhood that Barry writes about could could easily be um, my own uh, in the in the congregation.
1: This kind of goes back to your to your origin story, but I I have to throw in there that part of my Wendelberry origin story is connected to you. And then I think I had only read the first one I had ever read was Jaber Crow. And I think right after that, or maybe the semester I read it, I was a student at Milligan, and I remember going to lunch with you, and we were talking about various things. And one thing that came up was, uh, you're like, I've got this little book, I want you to take and I want you to read it. And it was his little, Blessed Are the Peacemakers, book. And that was probably the second thing that I read. And it was because you had, you had handed off that handed that off to me. Which I, I mean, I don't remember the the context of the conversation, but I remember being really struck by that little book and how the the. I don't know. It's just the the punch that that little book packs, and is that does, was that an excerpt from something bigger? Do you know, or was that just its own standalone little?
3: I think it was its own standalone piece, piece uh, probably written around the time uh, just after nine eleven, when it seemed that there was a bit of urgency about about the message that he was trying to get out. Yeah. Uh, chamber Crow was actually the I think the second uh, book that I was given. And it was given uh, by a pastor in our area who just kept telling me, you've got to read this guy. you got to put down what you're doing right now and, and pick this book up. So um, I think Barry is is, uh, is often best shared.
1: Oh, for sure.
2: Tim, there's a, a, a university near me, George Fox uh, University. And um, a few years ago, I heard a story about a professor from George Fox uh, or maybe it was their seminary. I I can't remember if it was university or seminary, but they were giving a talk near me. And supposedly this professor sa- said that if you want to understand what's happening in American Christianity today, you have to understand Wendell Berry. And I kind of want that to be true. <laughs> uh, I want there to be a, a you know, a, a great conversation happening about Wendell Berry and, and what Berry the, the values that that Barry um, uh, expounds on I but I'm curious in your experience, do you see many other ministers who are engaging with Barry's work?
3: Yeah, I certainly do, but I think they they tend to run along a certain vein. Um, I don't find a lot of folks who uh, are converted from Fox News to Barryism. <laughs> um, but, but I do find a, a lot of pastors who, who are already reading authors like, um, uh, Frederick beekner say, who find real natural connections with, uh, with the writings of, of Barry. Hmm. Um, I think there's a, a strong minority of, um, a wonderful, f- uh, fellowship of friends in the pastorate who, who love Wendell Berry and, and who are learning from him
2: that's
0: encouraging Mm -hmm. yeah for sure well um so we're here tonight to discuss watch with me um so this is a story that was set and correct me if i'm wrong guys in in 1916 in port william time um Mm -hmm. it was published in 1994 in a collection of stories uh about ptolemy proudfoot and his wife uh miss minnie that was uh i think it was titled watch with me right um, do I have that right? Is that where it was originally published? Yes. Nice.
1: Yeah the yeah the collection of Proudfoot stories, which I that's the one that they had just re released. What was that? Two years ago?
0: Yeah 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 so.
1: they, they, that re release of it and I got all excited because I thought it was a new book. Um, definitely wasn't because I and even just I didn't even realize at that point once I figured out it wasn't a collection of new stories. I didn't realize that that collection had existed on its own at another point until like two days ago as I was getting ready for this and it searched <laughs> for it and saw, and saw the original cover. So it's it just great. neat. To, it's neat to think about this as being a uh, part of, part of a whole that it was intended to be and not like sort of scooped together later, you know, um, let's just take all the Ptolemy Proudfoot stories and put them together. It's like, no, it was, it's, it's, it's nice to know that they were, they were meant to be together.
0: Yeah, Definitely. Um, well, John, would you mind giving us a synopsis of the story?
2: Sure. Yeah. So watch with me, as you said, takes place in early August, 1916. And, uh, as you guys were just talking about sort of the, there are two main characters in the story. And one of them is, is Ptolemy Proudfoot or tall as he is affectionately known among Port Williams residents and readers. Uh, and tall is a conscientious farmer uh, we first met Tall in the short story "A Consent," which we discussed in Episode Five, and that story told um, uh, the tale of his of Tall's early courtship of Miss Minnie, the school teacher in Port William. Uh, and now, eight years later, Miss Minnie is his wife, and this story takes place over the course of, you know, maybe a little bit more than twenty-four hours, twenty-four to thirty hours or so, and Tall's day begins sort of sideways he has to first he has to go fetch three milking cows that had strayed then one of the cows steps with a manured foot right until the milking jug ruining it (laughs) then he tries and fails to shoot a cow snake that had been trying to steal eggs out of a hen's nest and then tall sets the shotgun aside hoping for another shot at the snake uh who had disappeared through the through the hole that that tall had shot in the wall Um, finally, Tall starts hoeing some cabbages and he thinks that his day is straightening out. But in fact, it's an unforgettable day that's just getting started because over the ridge comes Tall's neighbor, um, Thacker Hample. And, uh, Thacker's nickname is Nightlife. And he got that nickname, Nightlife, because his vision was so bad that Barry says he could not tell daylight from dark and therefore was liable to conduct his nightlife in the daytime. <laughs> uh, nightlife is a young man. We don't know how young. I was thinking maybe in his 20s, because we know that he was young enough for Miss Minnie to have once have had him as a student. Hmm. Um, and we learn early on that nightlife suffers in other ways besides just bad vision. Uh, he's poor. He comes from a long line of, of poor Hamples. Uh, he doesn't have much of a sense of humor. He is prone to get crazy when he's drunk. He's, like, like many of the Hamples, he's mechanically gifted, but he's described, described as having an ineptitude that was all his own. And then, very critically, Nightlife is also described as being prone to spells, when he would be sad and angry and confused and maybe dangerous, and nobody could help him. And uh, he was periodically sent to an asylum. The evening before our story began, Nightlife had tried to make himself the preacher at the annual revival of the Goforth Church. Uh, but the actual preachers had rejected him, and he'd made a scene, and then Tall had been asked to sort of usher him from the stage. And Tall had a feeling that that episode wasn't over, and he was right. So, Nightlife comes over the ridge in something of a daze, and he picks up Tall's shotgun, where Tall had, had leaned it against the shop. And, and Nightlife says to himself, Why, a damn fellow just as well shoot himself, I reckon. And then he wanders away. And Tall and his friend Sam, who's there true, too, try to stop Nightlife, but they're careful not to get too close or to be too insistent now that Nightlife, who's clearly not in his right mind, has the shotgun Tim we'll talk uh in a little bit about an essay that you wrote about this and you describe this story uh, in your essay as a slow motion chase which I love (laughs) um because from here on out Tall and Sam follow nightlife though nightlife doesn't seem to know it they try to keep him in sight as he heads into the woods but they're very careful not to startle him or force his hand so that he doesn't hurt himself or hurt them uh They're joined along the way by several other young men who look too tall for leadership. And Nightlife is in a daze. Uh, Barry describes him as being not himself, but instead the vehicle of something he suffered. He moved like a man in the concentration of urgent bodily pain, though the men knew his pain was not of the body. At one point, Nightlife actually walks right into the home of a couple just eating lunch, uh, startling them between forkfuls of fried fish and nightlife says and again in a kind of a daze let us earnestly compose our hearts for prayer <laughs> and he prays a long prayer and the couple who know nightlife urge him to stay and eat with them but he looks at them as if they're strangers and his face is described as being in a blur of incomprehension and then he walks out the door so the men continue to follow nightlife along the river, through the woods, through pastures, um, along streams uh, all throughout the day and into the night um, and uh, eventually they they lose when it, when it gets dark, they're able to follow him for a little while in the moonlight, but then the moon is covered with a by a cloud and so they can't even, go much further and so they come out of the woods they feel like they've lost him and so they start a fire they light a fire and eventually they fall asleep and then they're surprised the next morning when nightlife is standing over them and he says couldn't you stay awake and he walks away again and they follow him and they've realized now that they're coming back almost like in a circle back toward proud uh, tall proud foot's home and they go into the the shop i feel like oh man I, i'm just going to pause here i feel like this is a long synopsis. <laughs> <laughs> It's all right. Just go for it. Like, I'm trying to give them details, but man, this is taking way longer than it's I thought. All good. It's
0: a
1: long story, and it's not as long as you think. So, yeah. it probably feels long, like a long time because okay. you've just been talking, but no. Yeah, we <laughs> are okay. good. Yeah, no, good.
2: <laughs> all right. So, uh, all right. So, I'll pick up from there. So, they, uh, they all end up inside Tall's shop and nightlife leads them in a hymn oh i'm sorry i should say too that a storm breaks out so they're all running into the into the shop um to get out of the out of the storm and nightlife is in there too and he says he wants to to lead them in a hymn and so they sing the hymn "O the land of cloudless day and then he preaches his sermon the sermon that he had had prepared for the night before and then he's kind of eventually he's startled out of this daze when the hen that the snake <laughs> that the snake had been whose eggs the snake had been trying to get sort of startles him uh, and he and he comes back to himself and they all end up having breakfast together <laughs> 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 i have Absolutely not doing it justice. It's an incredible <laughs> short story. Uh but it it but it's it is remarkable. Like you have it's there's a lot of tension. It's it's sometimes very slow, sometimes very funny, sometimes mm-hmm. very sad. There's a lot happening here. Um and then it ends in a way that is very surprising.
1: And the ending is the ending in itself is it's like a it's the, the the story itself bridges on novella, you know, because there's a lot there and it's a, it's a longer yeah. story or whatever. But the ending of it is certainly one of the more uh, like typical short story endings where they're not going to like tie up everything nicely and tell you everything that happens after that moment. It's more about just the moment that's captured right then. And so it is it, it is kind of a, an ending that's a little little difficult to put your finger on. As far as what, uh, as far as what to make of it,
2: in, in, in some sense. But. And I didn't talk about what he was actually preaching because I think we'll get into that. What the sermon was, mm-hmm. uh, but because but that's
0: important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, let's turn to uh, Tim. Tim Ross. Uh, I guess we have to to specify can, which which Tim.
1: You can call me Timmy, like my family does. Okay. I have, my, I have an uncle Tim, and he's Tim. Okay. And I'm Timmy. So if we want to do that for tonight, I'll.
0: All right, sounds good. I don't know if I'll do that.
1: I'll, I'll, but. Al- I'll allow it. No.
2: Timmy and Dr. Tim? Yeah, something like that, yeah. <laughs> we w- if we call Tim Ross Dr. Tim, we don't have to call you Timmy, but we just really will anyway, yeah. <laughs> uh, I really regret
1: telling you guys that. Yeah, yeah.
2: Hey, I'm Johnny. I'm Johnny, so yeah. my dad is John, so I'm Johnny. Yeah,
0: Very good. Well, uh, so Dr. Tim, one uh, of the... One of the reasons we're we're excited that you're with us tonight, Uh, as as John mentioned, um, you actually wrote an essay about this story. Uh, It was titled, Watch With Me, Wendell Berry, and Sitting With the Least of These. Uh, This essay appears in the collection from Each Brave Eye, Reflections on the Arts, Ministry, and Holy Imagination. Um, It was edited by our friend Todd Edmondson uh, and uh, published by Shook Foil Press, which is an awesome name. For a Christian publisher, uh, a little Jordan yes. Manley Hopkins. Um, but uh, in this essay, you're sort of meditating on the story as a model of how Christian communities can provide a ministry of presence for people uh, with real struggles. So I'm wondering if you might talk a little bit about that and uh, what you're what you're saying there in that essay.
3: Sure. Yeah, the essay was originally pitched to to a bunch of. Todd's friends, ministering friends, folks who did all kinds of different things, teachers and pastors. And uh, the idea was that each of these folks was asked to think about some work of art. It could either be some um, some kind of created art, a painting, a sculpture, a poem, written art. and uh, And we were asked to choose a piece of art that somehow spoke into our vocation somehow spoke into our practice of our our vocation, and uh, so this story immediately came to mind for me, because I think that that this is really a gospel story, um, as much as uh, as he's uh, often unhappy with uh, organized religion. Uh, Barry's been deeply affected by the gospel and. And I think if you squint your eyes a little bit, and maybe if your eyes are tired after staying awake all night with Tall out in the woods uh, without anything to eat, uh, you can begin to think that this sounds and, and looks a lot like gospel. First, there's, uh, there's the title, uh, Watch With Me, which comes from the words of, of Jesus. In, in the Garden of Gethsemane on that last night of his life, the night that he was betrayed, when he his own soul was coming apart in prayer. Uh, he was bleeding drops of blood. Um, he knew that his time was near, and uh, he asked for the disciples the only gift that perhaps they were capable of giving him, which was simply to, to be present with him and all the goodness of it and all the terribleness of that hour. And so he said, stay here and, and, and watch with me. They of course were, uh, were pretty much unable to do that. They, they slept until the, the moment of crisis came and then they, they, all, they all ran off. But, um, but this, this concept of staying with people in a crisis and, uh, and working together uh, very much resembles the kind of congregation that, uh, that I've served over the last 22, 23 years. Um, I think this is a very layered story that Barry has written. It is a story about people who don't fit, people who are odd, people who are handicapped uh, by the vagaries of life. And it's about the way that they fit in or they, they don't fit in into a community. And I think that overall Barry is, is really saying that every single person is important to the membership of a community. There's no one we can leave out. There's the ones who, who seem to be uh, the weakest, the hardest to get along with are perhaps even the ones that we, we need the most. And, um, we see that not only through the character of, of nightlife and his relationship with tall, but we see it, uh, through the, the group of men who are following nightlife, uh, through the woods in that long night. Some of them, um, some of them are jokers. Uh, some of them are just hard workers. One of them is a guy that's pretty hard to get along with himself, (laughs) um, they were were joined by another guy who was known as a as a gossip in the community and a incredibly lazy person, and um, he was kind of harshly sent off um, by by some of the guys. And uh, Tall grieved even his loss. Um, he didn't want to see anybody lost, and he he missed him when he was gone. And so uh, this story. Um- didn- Go ahead, Tim. Tim. I was just
1: going to throw in, throw in, <laughs> Timmy. Thank you. <laughs> I was just going to throw in there that we could also include their wives dealing with the sort of mess all these guys have got themselves into. I love that little detail. And that's one thing about this story that I would just love to know more is that you've got these the wives of all these men who have grouped up at Tall's house and who are just kind of waiting it out. Like, what in the world have they gotten themselves into? <laughs> They've been gone for thirty six hours. These this kind of like ragtag group that have all just kind of assembled as they go and you can imagine them all kind of gathering one by one just waiting to waiting for them to sort of sort this thing out or or finish whatever mess they've gotten themselves into so they can they can go ahead and move on with all the stuff that is mentioned in the story that they've been taking over for them right <laughs> doing all the milking and doing all the things that they were doing uh, while they were off helping this man
3: yeah thank goodness this was in a time before cell phones um, other, <laughs> otherwise, they would have had to check in every 15 minutes. The yep. yep. <laughs> story would have been a little different. But, but I see this. Find as, my iPhone. <laughs> I see this as a, a, a good paradigm of uh, the congregation and congregational life. Uh, in congregational life, you, you can't fix everything, you can't fix everybody. And in, in congregations, everyone is important or everyone ought to be important. And sometimes when tragedy strikes and when families come apart, when grief seems to be unending, uh, perhaps the only gift and maybe the best gift that we can give to people is to, is to, as Tall would say, to, to stay involved, to be involved in their story in all of its craziness uh, in all of its difficulty. And, uh, and to be present, and to see things through to the end, uh, there was a real sense that Toll didn't want to lose anybody, and uh, and he worked hard with every um, with every effort that he could make to to uh, not only save this situation with nightlife, but uh, but to get these guys through as well. So I, I think it's a beautiful story and a, and a great example of. What congregational life is like at its best?
2: Tim, can I ask a, a follow-up question as well? Um, since you were talking about the the the, uh, the New Testament imagery, um, there's a when when Jesus comes back from prayer, he sees his apostles that they've fallen asleep, and he says, uh, "Couldn't you know? Could you not even stay awake?" And of course, that's what. That is essentially what Nightlife says to the men when he comes upon them uh, at the campfire. But then, when he does get back to the shop, he's pre- and he preaches that sermon. Um, we're told that what what Nightlife wanted to preach about at the revival was that he wanted to tell what it was like to be himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the the text for his sermon in the shop is Matthew eighteen twelve, and it's um, and it's the the parable of. Uh, the shepherd who, uh, who's whose sheep go, who, uh, who has a sheep that goes astray, and so he leaves the ninety nine to go find the the one. Um, can you talk about about that story and and how that fits in with with who nightlife is and his role in the community?
3: Sure. I think that we're in sort of a crisis time. I don't know. Churches have probably always been in a crisis where. Um, the great temptation you know is is uh is to pull in lots of numbers and to, to uh, try to make everybody happy and if you don't fit then then uh, you eventually just uh, work your way out of the community or or you're shunned by the community but <clears throat> I love that section where where nightlife is uh he's trying to to tell people what it feels like to be the lost sheep he's trying to tell people what what it's like to, to be on the outside in, in a fumbling, halting way. He's screaming that message uh, out to him. And so I think um, the best congregations and the best groups of members in a congregation are always those people who who have an eye out for folks who are struggling, folks who are on the margins, Um People who uh, make a lot of mistakes. And, and when you look at the gospel, uh, that's exactly who Jesus hung around with uh, as his disciples. And it's the people who were incredibly attracted to Jesus as well. Uh, I find it fascinating that um, the prostitutes and the tax collectors and people who were were hated uh, by the Pharisees and the leaders of the people. Uh, they ran away from them, but they ran to Jesus. Um, mm-hmm. he, he attracted those folks. And, and I have to think that, that it was because his eye was on them. He was, he was looking out for them. He was reaching out to them. He was speaking their language and, uh, and he was touching them and being present with them. In, in all of their difficulties, so probably the best if we can emulate that in in small ways in our own congregations um, we'll we'll come a lot closer than uh, than simply coming up with the latest big idea on how to draw people to a big service on Sunday.
1: Yeah, hey, can I jump in and I want to read something from the story to go along with what you were saying to him this this uh, this part this is this is part of the sermon. Because this is yeah, one of those, you were talking about how Wendell Berry stories, you change the names, you change the places, and it applies to where you are. This is one of those little sections where his kind of thesis of this sermon that he's giving could apply to just about anybody, especially to those who are, who are disadvantaged. Um, but he says, I'm going to read, read this section. Though Christ, in speaking this parable, asked his hearers to think of the shepherd, nightlife understood it entirely from the viewpoint of the lost sheep who could imagine fully the condition of being lost and even the hope of rescue, but could not imagine rescue itself. Oh, it's a dark place, my brethren, Nightlife said. It's a dark place where the lost sheep tries to find his way and can't. The slopes is steep and the footing hard. The ground is rough and stumbly and dark and overgrown with bushes and briars, a hilly and a hollery place. And the shepherd comes a-looking and a-calling to his lost sheep, and the sheep knows the shepherd's voice and he wants to go to it, but he can't find the path. And he can't make it. I love that that last line hit me, hits me heavily every time I read it. But he knows the voice, he knows what it is, and he wants to go to it, uh, but he can't find that path, and he and he can't make it himself. And that's just, it makes me think of of nightlife himself, and of his his need. He needs those other guys to to be there for him, and he needs his community to 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 do their best to hear him and to not to not write him off.
3: Yeah, a couple of people that I I just like to tell you a little bit about who absolutely fit into that. I, this morning I was at a state prison visiting with a guy who hopefully is going to get out this this year, and uh, our congregation is going to walk with him for at least a year, uh, mentoring him and just hanging out with him and and uh, coming to know him. Um, but he uh, he's just so frustrated. Uh, by the system. He feels like he's trying to do everything he can to, uh, to, to get where he wants to be. And, and he feels like it, it's just not working for him. And uh, he reminds me of another friend I have, a guy who uh, has really poor health and a guy who uh, pops in at the church every once in a while looking for help. And he's a guy named Robert. And uh, Robert told me, he said, he said, you know, pastor, he said, it's hard being poor. It's really hard. It's hard work being poor, and uh, I find that most of the folks that that come our way who, with uh, deep, uh, struggling physical and mental needs, uh, they're not quite as eloquent as uh, Wendell Berry's characters, but uh, <laughs> but they're they're very much like them. Uh, they hmm. they speak the truth and uh, they tell you the way it is.
2: Yeah, I've wondered if if. If all of, you know, as this story takes place, we're not told this, but I I wonder if, as the story takes place, the revival is still going on at, back at the church. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. a great question.
0: Yeah.
3: yeah, undoubtedly. Yeah.
0: Well, it's interesting, you know, how the pastors at that revival treat nightlife. um and, and I'm sort of wondering, all, all these guys have known Nightlife their entire lives, and his, his entire life probably, right? Uh, I, I'm, I'm thinking that it's common practice during a revival to have a visiting pastor. Is that, uh, would that be, uh, to you guys' knowledge, would that be right? Uh, the revivals that That's I went to I as a kid. Story, yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, they, these guys don't know nightlife and they they treat him very differently they sort of dismiss him and say no you can't preach that's what we're here to do and and we're going to go along with the plan um so their treatment of him is is very different than his friends and you know i'm wondering i i think it's uh i think it's safe to say um nightlife is suffering from some kind of mental illness um a, a kind of mental illness that we're told is uh sometimes dangerous to other people um mm-hmm. and and certainly to himself. Uh, but um, but yeah, we have this contrast in how people deal with his mental illness. We have these these pastors, uh, like you, like you said, Tim, pastors don't always get the, uh, get the best depiction of Wendell Berry um, who, who sort of dismiss him and then you have uh, these, these friends who, who follow him, make sure that the community stays safe from him, and that as far as they can, um, that they protect him from himself. I'm wondering if that might sort of give us a model for thinking about, um, you know, uh, a ministry of presence for folks who, who have real, real trouble with, with mental illness, depression, and, and other kinds of, uh, other kinds of illnesses.
3: I think one of the coolest parts of the story for me was, um, the way that Tall spoke to Nightlife at the revival. Mm. Do you remember mm-hmm. that, that, uh, mm-hmm. these guys were trying to sort of get him out of their grill and, uh they found tall, who was the most sensible among them probably. And, uh, and they sort of put it on him to talk this guy down off the ledge. And, uh, so it was really wonderful to me. And I think tall for, in my mind and, uh, stands for a lot of people that I know just regular folks in congregations who really do the bulk of all the work. Um, they're the folks who, uh, who are getting into people's lives in, in quiet ways, ways oftentimes that are never known. And, uh, and they're, they're speaking words of, of love and goodness and redemption to people and, and just letting people know how much they care about them. So everything that Tall did after that, uh, his two days of walking and wandering and following Nightlife uh, in in times of great danger to me were really just um, the next the next step the next chapter in that uh, that posture of love and and gentleness and grace and goodness. Yeah,
2: I love that you said that because it's it's a reminder that the care that happens in the the kind of congregation you're describing, the care is not left to the professionals. <laughs> it's not only the pastor's job to care for the people and the broken people in the congregation or the broken people in the neighborhood. And, and there are broken people everywhere, obviously, and we're all broken, but it's a, it's everyone's job.
3: Yeah. One of the first uh, incidents that I thought about as I read this story uh, from the life of my congregation, we had a, a woman, wonderful sister, uh, I'll call her Merrill, who, um, who was with us for a good long time, who struggled with mental illness. Uh, she was diagnosed as schizophrenic and uh, paranoid. And uh, she was an incredible artist. And uh, oftentimes the pictures that she would draw would be of Jesus uh, as the good shepherd actually. And, uh, and they, were, they were from her view. Uh, from her vantage point. She'd use a lot of found objects in these pictures and they were, they were just lovely. But uh, she told me a story about coming to this church and she got there before I did. And uh, she said that uh, on her very first Sunday there, uh, she was so struck by the music that reminded her of the music of her home church and, and uh, it was an emotional moment for her. And, uh, and she just felt like she wanted to be with these people, but she said she knew that she had to tell someone about the truth that lived within her, that there were hard aspects of her nature and aspects she couldn't control. And so as the service ended and the last amen was sounded, she turned to the first person that she found, the lady sitting next to her, and she said, I just, I just think you need to know that that uh, you may not want me in this church. I, I love the service today, but I don't know if you'll see me again because, you know, this is this is the kind of place that maybe doesn't want somebody like me. She said I've I've been under treatment for uh, pretty severe schizophrenia. I have kind of manic attacks sometimes, and I'm I'm kind of paranoid about things and. She said that the lady just looked at her, smiled, never missed a beat, and said, oh, you'll get along just fine here. Uh, take, take a number, you know. Uh, we've all got issues. And, uh, you know, that's, that's the kind of, uh, of person, just somebody sitting sitting in the pew with you who, uh, who tells you it's okay and who tells you that, that there's a place for you, no matter what your story is, no matter what your situation is. Uh, you can find uh, membership in this place. Mm-hmm.
1: That that brings to mind, uh, is it uh, Walter Kotman in the story? I think he's the, is he the character who's, you had alluded to this earlier, how he was unkind to uh, Putt yep. to that character and kind of shunned him and, and sent him off in this moment where he just was showing some some real... I don't even know the, the a good word for it, but he was just not very understanding of Putt's own situation and the, and the and what Putt was bringing to the table. but later on in the story after the sermon of this this troubled individual who gives him this sermon and time goes by and then in the story it says that Elton Penn came up to him later and said, Well, did he make sense? I mean, did you feel for him? And this is the character who we're supposed to think is the the least understanding, even though he stuck with the journey, he says, me. Course, I felt for him. The son of a bitch could preach, <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> you know, the, like uh that, and that's a kind of a, a uh, sort of a regular occurrence through Barry's stories. And that, like, well, the fact is, he did what he did very well, and I'm not gonna, and I'm not gonna discount that for him, you know. Yeah. Just that very practical kind of nature of uh all the all the troubles that that come with that come with nightlife. He's like, well, yeah guy could preach he's talented <laughs> he knew what he was doing or he felt it
3: I, I love these nuanced characters um, who aren't just black and white uh, and I find that to be more true in in congregations uh, there's so much that happens that's um, that's secret that uh, people don't talk about there's so many kindnesses that uh, that people offer um, and certainly there there are are people um, you know who don't get it and there are folks who are, are rough rough on other, other people, mainly themselves but uh, but yeah who wants to be known by, by their worst uh, <laughs> their worst acts uh, or their worst characteristics? Um, people are incredibly nuanced and, and they, they can always surprise us by the ways they they, uh, they can turn around quickly.
0: Yeah, I mean, Tall Tall sort of finds himself in the unenviable position. Not only is he, he's the oldest uh, oldest person um, in this party that's that's following after nightlife, uh, and uh, he um, it's his gun, so he feels the most involved, uh, and he's having to not only is he have this crisis that he's having to deal with, but he's also having to manage all these personalities uh, of all of all the folks there, and and. Tim Ross I was wondering if that uh, hit a little too close to home for you as the pastor of a church where uh lots of personalities are, are getting involved and and things like that
3: oh I don't know you know I don't think that tall is a a Jesus figure and i don't I don't consider myself to be one either but I think we're we're disciples uh, sure you know I think about Jesus when uh when he came out of a village that didn't receive him and James and John the sons of thunder ask do you want us to call down thunder and lightning upon these guys you want us to call down fire from heaven and uh, wipe these guys out and uh, that's not so different from mr. Cotman in in this story and uh, <laughs> and I think that you know all these guys were were uh, disciples they would never consider themselves that they would never think of themselves in in that in that way but yet, uh, their feet uh, stayed with the journey and uh, it became kind of a sacred journey
0: Yeah I, I was wondering you know uh, a, a good portion of your your essay you start you, you talk about pilgrimage um, and the idea that uh, a journey undertaken um, that that sort of takes you out of your daily uh, your daily life um, can really, uh, can really change you. And you see that element kind of going on uh, with Tall and his companions. Uh, I wonder if you might say a little bit more about that, and what you see going on there.
3: Sure. Um, as I was reading this story, I was also doing a lot of work on pilgrimage and rites of passage. And uh, there's been a lot of anthropological work done on rites of passage. Not, not, uh, I suppose religious rites of passage, but also rites of passage in in traditional societies, and uh, from my work in Africa, that, that got me got me excited. But I began to read uh, the work of some anthropologists from uh, University of Chicago, uh, Victor Turner and his wife Mary, and they wrote about rites of passage. and And there, uh, these are those events where people are trying to come close to what they consider to be the holy, the the sacred, and. Uh, there are lots of different ways that societies do that. Some through their ceremonies, maybe circumcision ceremonies, or marriages, or events where age groups are being divided up. Um, sometimes I think we're more familiar with religious ceremonies, like baptism, or the Lord's Supper, or, or even Christian pilgrimage. But there are some uh, patterns that, that all of these sacred journeys take. And, uh, and I found those same uh, patterns in this story. Uh, first of all, there is um, the, uh, the coming out from regular society and uh, the, the beginning of a sacred journey. And uh, it's people who are pulled out of their regular society. And, and these guys, it was an accident, they, they thought, but they found themselves together and they began to gather more people that came to them to, to help. They were pulled out of common life, and, and even the day and the night began to seem very strange to them. They weren't eating, um, they were kind of half lost all the time, and uh, it took on sort of an, an eerie, otherworldly character. Um, the the anthropologists say that uh, in, a, in a pilgrimage, people enter into what they call a, a liminal uh, experience. Uh, liminal is, is the word for Latin word for threshold. And so this is a time when you're at the threshold, you're, you're no longer what you were, but you're not quite what you're becoming yet. And the experience itself begins to remake you. And so these, uh, these folks were also, I think, on kind of a, a journey in which they said over and over again, we didn't know what was ahead, we didn't know what was behind, we just found ourselves living in the moment, following nightlife. Uh, in a pilgrimage, c- communal aspects of the people that you're going through these experiences with are incredibly powerful. There develops uh, what some have called a communitas, or a koinonia of the road, uh, you go through uh, all kinds of dangers and uh, deprivations and hardships, and it takes everybody working together to uh, to get you through those things. Uh, in in our text, one time, uh, Tall is talking how they have passed beyond hunger and thirst. Uh, they seemed to have become enlarged out of their bodies into sight itself. Well, that's, that sounds like a sacred journey to me. <laughs> um, there's also laughter and joy uh, in, in, uh, in these pilgrimages and times when you can let down. And uh, there was this great line out of, uh, out of this story where Tall is saying, uh, if I wasn't so hungry and if I didn't have nightlife to worry about, he said, I'd be having a pretty good time. And then, and then it said, in fact, he was having a pretty good time anyhow. Uh, even even as they were going through these tough times, uh, they were having a they were having a good time. And then uh, in pilgrimage, you also uh, have to figure out what it means to reintegrate into your your society. And we sort of get that at the end of this story, where they come back home and. And they're with their people again, and uh, and there's this joyous, huge feast that's been set mm-hmm. for them, and all of the work, of course, is going to take place in the days and weeks and months to come. But that journey is a journey they talked about for the rest of their lives. It it changed them, it impacted them, and uh, and they couldn't have done it without without each member of that group, including, including high life, nightlife, excuse me. High life—that's uh, taking me back to Chicago beers, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh,
1: yeah, I got. I want to to piggyback on that because I mean that is—I I love that the the language of the pilgrimage. But I what really fascinates me about this story is the dichotomy between their pilgrimage and then what what nightlife himself is going through. And so if if those that group of guys is the the group that's in that quinonia of the road and they're finding this unity or this this new truth in one another and they're going along on this journey, then I guess we would say that what <laughs> uh, what nightlife is going through is, it's like the Desert Fathers or something, right? Like it makes me think of the wilderness, that he is kind of letting himself just disappear into the wilderness, that rage has built up and the problems have built up and the the level of misunderstanding in his life that he's dealt with, especially at this, this, this revival is kind of what the, the tipping point. He doesn't know what else to do besides basically say, Okay, I'm gonna grab a gun. I'm gonna go to the woods. I don't know what's next, but I'm <laughs> but I'm going. And he disappears in silence. And even in those moments where they where the men are talking about their hunger and their thirst, they keep measuring it against his. They're like, well, gosh, he has to be hungry. Oh, gosh, he has to be thirsty. I mean, he's he's finally stopping to drink, and so now we'll stop to drink. And you know, it's and and they they also sort of refer to the fact that sh- he seems to be in a under one of these spells or something where they're like, surely he knows we're here and he looks at us and he looks at us as if he sees us, but he doesn't respond. Um, yet he, he, he continues to choose to be alone. Um, un, except for the part where he stops by at, to, to see Uncle Othie before Uncle Othie gen, uh, joins him. But yeah, just that dichotomy there, like really, really struck me. And I, I kept, couldn't help but also think about the, the idea of wilderness and the idea of You can learn from nightlife himself and that he's in the most frustrated he's been in his life. And and the person I'm thinking of as I'm saying this is a a student I have who's a special ed student who deals with the and tells me about the frustrations of how the rest of the world reacts about like saying coming to me and saying, I was in gym. And we're playing basketball, and they wouldn't pass me the ball, and it's frustrating. I wanted them to pass me the ball. I wanted to shoot that ball. I wanted to play, you know, and and that's the most frustrated they've been in the entire day, and that that's kind of where where he's at, where he's like, I wanted to preach, I wanted to preach, and so I I just need to get out of here. I just need to head to the wilderness and try to and try to make some sense of this.
3: Um, Isn't it the task of the sacred community to? Uh to see people like that, to to hmm. to stay with them, to watch with them, mm-hmm. to um, to gently help them when they're out of their out of their heads for whatever reason, and uh, and to be there when when they begin to wake up. Um, if I think about if you think about Jesus, you know, some of the healing stories. Um, think about the the gathering demoniac um, when he came back to his. Right mind, and uh, and he wanted to join the the little Jesus band, and and Jesus said, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna send you back to your family, back to your community, back to your people. Um, I think about the uh, the prodigal son. uh, We're told that that when he came to himself, uh, what what a great line, and I think that's what we see from nightlife Uh, when when he came to himself at the end of the story in that shop, um, he was relieved of the gun and uh, he immediately was invited into the midst of the community and he realized that he'd been there all the time, perhaps with these men and uh, off they went to the feast. Hmm.
2: That's good. Tim, something that you talk about in your essay that I think is really fascinating is there is a very real sense in which Nightlife himself is the leader. The the lost sheep is the leader of this of this group. Uh, it, it's easy to see Tall as the leader because everyone's deferring to him. They're all orbiting around Tall, but Tall is almost literally orbiting around Nightlife. Can you talk a little bit about that? About nightlife as the the leader. That's a
3: great point. Thank you. You just written my sermon for me for for this week. Uh, <laughs> I'm t- just reread
2: your essay. <laughs> <all right> there. <laughs> yeah,
3: think about that. Uh, think about not only think about the ways that we uh, devalue people who struggle and people who who hurt, and, uh, and and yet we're told over and over again in scriptures that. These guys are actually the the measure. They're the they're the bar. Um, how we treat them um, is uh, is a great example of how we're going to be treated. And uh, the Book of Hebrews talks about remember prisoners as if you were in prison with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I think that if anything, you know that the American church uh, ought to really be paying attention, uh, to that. I actually started this essay as I wrote this essay. It was, um, right about the time when the guy uh, shot up that movie theater in Aurora, uh, Colorado. And, uh, and I began to think, uh, you know, so what, what can we do? What, how can we stop this? You know, this long line of shootings that's continued to this day. And, uh, I know there are lots of stuff that, that needs to be done, a lot of governmental uh, work that, that needs to be done, but I can't help but think that that the most important work that needs to be done is uh, people in communities um, need to need to be engaged in the lives of people who are are distant and people who are on the outside and people who are bullied and people who are who are not quite right um and i and i just wonder um how much good we we could really do in our communities uh, simply by paying attention to the least of these rather than rather than the beautiful families with the most money you know which is kind of the folks that we usually gravitate towards
0: yeah, uh, Tim. I'm gonna quote you to yourself. Uh, <laughs> in your essay, you say, uh, "In Barry's world, these members, these members who have real, real struggles and um, and maybe even mental problems, like like uh, mental, problems with mental illness, like nightlife. Uh, these members are not problems or troublemakers to be chased away. They are necessary and valuable burdens, weighty but precious, that that the community must learn to bear and on the rarest occasions redeem." Um, I mean that really st- stuck out to me especially with what you're saying about pilgrimage um, these uh, it, it is a certainly a perilous situation that they're uh, that nightlife is dealing with and that they're dealing with and, and trying to make sure he doesn't hurt himself or or anyone else but they do come out on the other side of it with this uh, experience of having this uh, this pilgrimage um, so yeah I mean that that really struck me as uh, we, we gain something by offering this ministry of presence uh, to our, our, uh, our members who are, um, who are having these, these hard times too.
3: Yeah, I, I also think that uh, what struck me in that paragraph uh, was that the realization that we often seemingly don't do any good Or it seems like our best efforts are not enough Mm, mm, mm. and I think that we need to recognize that we don't do this because we think we can stop the next shooter we we don't do this because we think we can um, make peace between people who who can't get along but um, but we do it because that's that's what what Christ has done for us we do it because that's that's who we are, we do it because we believe in it, and whether the results really are, are secondary. Uh, Tall wished that, that he could he could save uh, Putt, for instance. Um, he failed in that, he felt badly ab- about it. He wished that he wouldn't have gone away, he wished they would have stayed with him on this journey. Um, and we often fail as well, but it, it needs to be part of our posture and our character, to uh, to constantly have our eyes open, uh, because in the in the end, we're all the lost sheep. Uh, we're all uh, people who, uh, who who struggle in in lots of different ways, and uh, and we've been found in lots of ways that have that have helped us, that have redeemed us, and uh, and it's given us uh, a good work to do.
0: Yeah. I'll just read uh, a section that I think is sort of the, um, maybe the center of gravity of the, of the story. It's um, at night uh, after, I think it's after Putt has left or right before Putt is about to leave. And Tall is sort of just starting to catch up with his hunger and, and, and his fatigue. And so along with heat and hunger and the beginning of weariness, Tall's mind began to be afflicted by a sense of the futility, even the foolishness of what he and the others were doing. For a while, his thoughts lurched here and there as if unable to accept that there was not something better to do or a better way to do what they were doing, some reasonability or sense that could be invited in. But he gave that up as he gave up with the same motion of his mind, the hope of food or rest or comfort. It was not going to make sense, not yet, and maybe not for a a long time, if ever. And for a while, maybe a longish while, there would not be food or rest or comfort either. When they got to the end of the story, he reckoned they would at least eat. He said to himself, I reckon it would be better not to have got involved. But he knew, even so, that helpless or not, hopeless or not, he would go along with nightlife until whatever happened that would allow him to cease to go along had happened. And he knew that Walter and Sam and the Hardies would keep going as long as he did, just as he knew that Putt would not. He thought, I reckon I am involved. Um, I just think that's a, a, a beautiful passage that just sort of describes the situation that Tull that finds himself in there. Um,
3: yeah, and that's kind of a one sentence. Uh, description of of Barry's philosophy of communal life I think Hmm. stay involved
0: yeah
1: Hmm. that's what what happens in this story with these men Uh, probably more often happens in his other stories with the women of the town when when death or something comes along tragedy comes along and the women kind of swoop in and take over this the, the household he likes to tell those stories. And I don't have a specific examples not coming to mind at, at the moment, but just the times of, especially in the, the war times where you have somebody who's died and they have people and you know, these women kind of swoop in. It's not they swoop in and say, well, here's what you're going to do and here's how we're going to make everything better. And here's how to explain everything away. No, they just show up and they're there with them and they're present with them and they make them meals and they're in the house with them and they stay as long as they need to. and And it's not something that's questioned by their families. It's just we... Yeah, we have to be here.
3: Yeah, these uh, commonplace postures and activities remind me very much of a, a story by Wallace Stegner. Uh, he's got this great story, or this great book, Wolf Willow. And in the middle of it, he tells a story about these uh, cowboys who are out rounding up cows and a big November blizzard hits. And uh, they, uh, they go through incredible hardships together. And there's a young hand who's, uh, who's kind of just trying to be a cowboy for the first time. And he's uh, he's trying desperately to uh, to fit in with these guys. And uh, in the end, near the end of that little tale, he uh, helps to save a guy. And uh, he comes back to the bunkhouse and he's indignant because not everybody, everybody's not patting him on the back and telling him what a great guy he is and telling him what a hero he is. And there's a wonderful line where Stegner says that he realizes that what, what, what counts for heroics in the outside world is just called chores here in this world. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I thought about that in, in this text, you know, these guys, they, they went on with their lives. And uh, this just became, you know, another day, this is just chores. And, and I think that that's what a, a good congregation or a good community does. You know, they uh, they don't see this as is heroic. They don't see it as saintly. They mm-hmm. uh, they just see this as the this is just the common work of a of a community.
1: And you're in your essay, you quoted something from Stanley Hauerwas that I really that I really loved. That actually put into words what I had tried to say early on in this podcast. But I think is is, is the perfect way to say it, where he says that this. Uh, his stories, that Barry's stories, well, I'll just read the quote. You, you said that, or Hauerwa says, Barry's novels do what is next to impossible in our time, and that is make goodness compelling. I usually hate sweetness because it always threatens to become sentimentality, and sentimentality is, I think, the enemy of the good. Barry's work is a sweet story about goodness wrought from the hardness of life. I love that, especially that last part, just that uh, these things are just what we call chores. You know, (laughs) there are these sometimes in his stories, it it teeters because there's good things being done. And it's like, uh, I don't know if it's just the modern mentality, uh, wanting to be cynical in moments and be like, well, nobody would do that. But yet in this situation, it's it's. Or in the story, it's perfectly believable, and and that's what it is. It's not sentimentality. It's goodness. It's it's doing the the right thing and seeing people who do it from uh, pe- people who are doing the right thing from a place where they're dealing with the hardness of life. There's a great and they're and they're not
3: patting each other on the back. Yeah, there's a great line in uh, Watch with Me where uh, Tall has gone out into the woods first to follow Nightlife, and uh, nobody else is with him yet, and. Uh, just about the time when he begins to wonder if his one of his neighbors is going to show up, he looks around and his neighbor's shown up. You know, it's yeah. Like, okay, yeah, and not a word needs to be spoken. Uh, they both are on the same page, and uh, and they they're synced in in the kind of ethos that they that they have.
0: Yeah,
1: and not to mention the fact that he's carrying a gun and like a famously dangerous gun, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he runs off with his gun, and they're like. I'm going to go follow him and uh you know and then somebody I forget the the name of the character but he says well you need to be careful because he might use that on you and he's like yeah well he might use it on you too and he's like yeah I guess he might and then he just keeps going you know <laughs> and, like, it, I got, and then they find I they find uh, uh
3: Burley in the middle of the night and the first thing Burley says is yeah I seen that he had he had your gun. I mean, he recognized the gun. You know? yeah, yeah,
1: my oh gosh, my favorite thing about Burley in this story is when they say, when they're talking about like where are we? And Tall says, "Oh, we're. Uh, do you know where we are?" And Tall says, "Well, within about a three or four mile radius." And Burley's only answer is, "Right here. Right, right here. We are.
0: Right.
1: We're right here. That's where we are." <laughs> it's such a such a Burley answer and such, yeah. a, such a great one. <laughs> right great. here.
0: Uh, well, Tim, I'm, I'm glad you brought up that, uh, that Harawas quote, um, you know, uh, are you talking to
1: Timmy I, or Dr. Tim? I, I'm talking I to know. Timmy
0: right now, but, okay. but I guess Dr. <laughs> Tim brought it up initially. So, yes, uh, yeah. so, you know, we talked in our episode on Pray Without Ceasing about the Tamer Hill Murphy um, article um, that mm-hmm. sort of gave some, I think it something like the limits of Wendell Berry's gospel, uh, that sort of critiques him for, uh, sort of just having this agrarian communitarian utopia in Port William and not really dealing with the real problems that, uh, that people in rural areas face. And, you know, she, she talks a lot about hillbilly elegy, the book, book hillbilly elegy. And, um, you know, that, uh, Barry's not really being realistic, uh, in, in his depictions, but, um, I don't know. I sort of wonder if that uh, that line from Harowas sort of is a is a good counter argument that um, you know it, it, Barry may not be you know giving us hard driving realism in his depiction, um, but he is making goodness compelling, and um, there's something really useful uh, about that in in literature.
1: And Tim O'Brien has a really great uh, really great essay about uh, what what he calls story truth. Uh, where it's this this idea that there's there's historical truth, there's the facts, sure, um, but there's also such thing as story truth, where you you're experiencing something that did not actually happen, and maybe doesn't look exactly like it would have happened if it really did happen, but the truth that comes out of it is just as is just as palpable and just as useful. Um, yeah. And, he, and, and it, he was referring to his uh, to the Vietnam stories he tells, which are not, of course not exactly what happened while he was there, um, but. They're probably more impactful than, and, and more, maybe they're even more truthful than the, any autobiography he would write about those experiences.
3: I, let me add here that I think that story truth um, is exactly what I experienced the first time I, I read this story. You know, you have to, you have, to have your imagination fired uh, in order to, uh, to put the pieces together and to, to push you to action um it's the it's the work of the imagination that makes a new way of living possible and i i think that a, a story like this like the first time i read it i thought immediately you know four or five instances and scenarios and people in, in my own congregation where who, who were living out the very principles that that barry's writing about so creatively i don't think it's really a matter of of whether it's an agrarian society or or an urban society I, I think these uh, these principles are pretty much timeless and 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 everywhere.
0: Yeah. Well, in a word, I I came across recently by uh, I was listening to the West Wing Weekly podcast, uh, and and someone used the the term aspirational uh, to describe Aaron Sorkin's writing um, in the West Wing and, and in other yeah. other stories, and they were saying cynicism is easy. It's easy to be cynical, uh, but there's something really really great about. Um, well-done well aspirational fiction that, uh, mm-hmm. that, that, that helps us imagine those possibilities.
1: And sort of a, doub- a double tie-in with that, with the Odyssey. There's that scene in the Odyssey where Odysseus says that hatred is easy. It's, I mean, of course, there's different translations where, but his son, Telemachus, is getting so upset about all these men in his house, and his dad walks in after being gone for all this time, and he's, he's covered in all of his... or he's, he's in his disguise, and his son starts to get mad, and he says that hatred is easy. You can be, be don't be don't show hatred. Mm-hmm. Just be patient. We're gonna get. We're gonna. Which of course I'm skipping over the fact that the end of that story is him murdering like thirty <laughs> people. Uh, but but uh, I was saying it's a, a double connection because the the Odyssey did come across my mind uh, as I was reading the story and just the kind of hero's journey or something of of, of Tall and as he's assembling his team, it's like a hillbilly oceans 11 or something where he's trying to, yeah. <laughs> to help, to help a friend, you know?
3: Uh, Walter Brueggemann one of my, uh, great mentors and he's an old Testament prof, but he's written this wonderful classic book about, uh, the prophetic imagination. And, uh, he, he talks about how, uh, our change change happens first in, in, in the imagination of, of people. And, uh, and, mm. And the prophets, in this case, uh, give us uh, new ways of, of seeing reality, seeing our reality. And uh, action often oftentimes follows that.
0: Yeah. Um, well, guys, this is a, a really long story. And um, we, of course, as as usual, we're only sort of scratching the surface. Are there other passages or sections that you guys wanted to talk about before we wrap up today?
1: I wanted to just just reference the fact that I think Tall and nightlife are a really, really fascinating duo <laughs> when you put them together in a story. Just on the, like the writing side of it, that I think, put that pairing those two together is is absolutely perfect. That Tall seems exactly like the kind of person who would, who would, who would fall into this with exactly the kind of person like. Like nightlife, and he does such a good job of describing these two characters in the story. Um, I know he, he discovers, or he describes, he describes Tall as being somebody who's, and I don't have the quote right in front of me. Um, I can find it in a second, but it's where, where his hair is always tussled. no matter how much Miss Minnie tries to keep him. Uh, keep him in order his shirt always comes untucked and he's always kind of, it's almost like he's too large for life that he just kind of bursts out of his clothing and he, you put a hat on him and his hair shoots out the sides you know and then and then about uh about nightlife he describes him as i i love 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 the line where he says that his he said he was a hample plain enough but it was as though when he was a baby his mechanically minded siblings had taken him apart and lost some of the pieces mm. Which they then replaced with just whatever they found lying around. <laughs> uh, he just has has such a amazing yeah just just uh, he just he just nails it. He, he gets the characters just right, uh, especially setting the setting the tone there at the beginning of the story. And uh, I I have to share this with you guys, which is totally unrelated. But I I have a I have a student who who did exactly what Wendell Berry did today, uh, and he described himself and we talked about this in that in that poem he's trying to, to or in the uh, the sermon he's trying to say what it felt like to be himself and we're we're doing this podcast project with my students and and he was trying to describe what his voice sounded like and after he said this I laughed for like two full minutes but he's like and my voice he's like i basically sound like a white morgan freeman with a sinus infection and I was like <laughs> i was like y-? and i laughed and i laughed and I, all i could say I was like y-? That is one hundred percent what you sound like. <laughs> it was amazing. Yeah, sorry, that was a total total tangent. But I just I've been laughing about that all day. Um, but I just I love that pairing. I love these two characters together, and it's also a, it's a pairing that's that's fascinating. Like in, uh, well, the first example that jumps into my head is No Country for Old Men. But where you but like stories where you have two perfectly paired characters who almost never see each other. You know. Like they never come face, or they come face to face for like 5% of the story. But just the fact that those two characters are in the same world in the same time seems so appropriate. And that has to be hard to do as a writer, to, to, to pair two characters so nicely that uh, that don't actually come face to face a whole lot.
3: I'll just say that I love uh, the, the scene where Nightlife bursts in on uh, Aunt Cordy and her husband. And uh, she's got such a great line. She says, what is this foolishness? Sit down and let me fix you a plate. Uh, <laughs> this, this nut comes in carrying a shotgun, and uh, she's wanting to feed him. And <laughs> and I, I just think that the, you know the place of eating together and food yeah. is uh, is such a, a powerful image not only through all of Wendell Berry's works but uh, but through the biblical text as well. And uh, there's certainly that that in scene uh, has echoes of the great banquet i think that that are lovely
0: yeah yeah there's a uh, uh a line towards the end of the story uh when i mean obviously these guys are all hungry they've they've gone they've missed three meals in a row um and uh uh sam hank says looks like nightlife would get hungry sooner or later itself don't you reckon a good meal mightn't get him unfitted it might, Toll said, there's a world of sanity and a little meat and gravy. It sure would help me. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that's one. And of course it does, the, the story does end with the, with, with the banquet, the meal that uh, the women have been preparing, um, hoping that, uh, hoping that the, the men would come back um, to, to the house. So, John, anything else we're, we're missing that, uh, that you wanted to
2: discuss? Well, I don't know if, it, if missing is the right word, but I had kind of a strange association when I was reading this story. It reminded me, <clears throat> and this gets back to what we were saying about aspirational fiction, it actually reminded me of Lady Elaine in Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Like uh, Windowberry has written this uh, about this character, Nightlife, who is difficult to be neighbors with. And that's who Lady Elaine was in the Mr. Rogers Neighborhood show. Uh, in, in the land of make-believe, there was, a, there was a neighbor, Lady Elaine, who was very difficult. She was ornery, was <laughs> causing trouble, antagonistic, um, short-tempered, uh, manipulative. And the neighbors had to figure out how to be a good neighbor to her. And I have a five-year-old, and so we watch and have watched quite a lot of the new Daniel Tiger cartoon. And Lady Elaine in the cartoon, as much as I like that cartoon, Lady Elaine in the cartoon is not difficult. She is just as kind and sweet as all of the other characters. And I think that that's a missed opportunity. I think we need stories that, as everyone has been saying that give us an imagination for what it means to love our neighbors. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, sort of a strange association, but it did. I love it. it come though. To mind. Yeah, that's great. One other thing that I, that I uh, I'll I'll say, I know that these, these guys and their wives are all busy, but it struck me that with all of the work that they had to do, they still were leading lives that sort of allowed them to be interrupted. Like they were available to be interrupted, and uh, I know that I have a tendency to overcommit, to be way too busy, to be inflexible with my schedule. Um, but I I want to I want to think about what it means to be interruptible, so that I can be there and available to the person right in front of me when when my own version of this story comes up yeah
1: yeah th- uh, you know tall saying and i i reckon i am involved with this thing and, and saying that like what was i don't remember the the quote exactly but it was something like uh that what had been a an interruption became a priority or something like that became, that...
3: became the work they had to do The i think it, had, yeah. it was something about the work yeah
1: yes the what would had been had been the what had started as an interruption became just the work that needed to be done that day, and that's uh, I, I'm I'm with you on that. Uh, it's it's so easy as as life gets busier and busier to 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 always be concerned with making sure that you're just doing the things that are on your to do list. But uh, the fact that somebody might need you is is something that is really easy to to sort of brush off.
0: Yes, yeah, definitely well thanks guys um, and thank you uh, Tim Ross for joining us tonight um, and uh, for for sharing um, the work you've done on on this story we we'll, we'll definitely link to that collection in our in our show night no- show notes if people want to check it out I think it's uh, actually mm-hmm. available on uh, on Kindle as an ebook uh, for um, uh, pretty easily so uh, definitely want to point people in that direction
3: Thanks guys it's been great to be with you tonight
0: Yeah. Thanks, Tim. Tim,
3: where can we, uh,
2: Dr. Tim, where can we find you uh, and our (laughs) listeners find you online?
3: Uh, You can find the church website at hopwoodcc.org. You can find me at tim at hopwoodcc.org.
0: All right. Thanks again for being with us.
3: Or come to Tennessee and see us. (laughs) Yes.
0: (laughs) There you go. go.
2: Thank you for listening to this episode of the membership we'd like to thank our guest dr tim ross pastor of hopwood memorial christian church on the campus of milligan college in tennessee today we discussed watch with me by wendell berry which can be found in the collection that distant land copyright 2005 counterpoint press it can be found in two other places as well watch with me which is a collection of seven stories about ptolemy proudfoot and the Library of America collection, Wendell Berry, Port William Novels and Stories, The Civil War to World War II. The essay that Dr. Ross wrote is found in the collection from Each Brave Eye, which is Copyright 2013 Shook Foil Books. Links to all these books, as well as other show notes, can be found on our website at membershippod.com. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all at membershippod. The membership is a proud member of the Rabbit Room Podcast Network. To discover more great podcasts and to learn about sponsorship opportunities, go to rabbitroom.org/podcasts. Finally, we'd like to ask a favor. If you're enjoying this podcast, would you head on over to iTunes and leave a review or rating for us? We already have 55 five-star ratings, which is really encouraging for a podcast that's still just in season 1. We really appreciate it, and thank you for listening. Thank you.